Good morning, church. Oh, wow. Good morning. Hey, y'all. My name is Liam Hardy, and let me just say thank you for this opportunity to come and bring uh, God's word this morning. Can we just give it up for that worship team this morning? Wasn't that incredible? Um, When we started this church, we had four musicians and two people on production, and it has been so incredible to see how faithful God has been every step of the way and how he's grown that team. And the spirit on the team, y'all, is wonderful. It's so good. It's a good time to come here early in the morning to set up and uh, prepare for worship. And I just want to say thank you to production, which you guys do week in and week out, and for worship. Thank y'all so much. Y'all, we're going to be continuing in our Scent series this morning, looking at the book of Acts. We're going to be actually pressing pause on Acts for the summer, and we're going to turn back to Acts in August, but we're going to talk about some different things over the summer. So this is actually uh, the end of the series for now. We're going to be in Acts 9, 20 through 31, Acts 9, 20 through 31, and I want to preach a message to you this morning called Narrow-Minded Faith, Open-Minded Grace narrow-minded faith, open-minded grace. And we're moving forward from Saul's conversion. Acts 9 happens for Saul. He encountered Jesus, and his life was radically transformed. You know, when we talk about Saul's story, a lot of times we say things like, well, he was a Pharisee, he was persecuting the church, and then he encountered Christ, and then he became Paul, who went on missionary journeys and wrote a large part of the New Testament. But we know from experience that our lives are longer and messier than a one-sentence synopsis. And so this passage is really cool this morning because we get to see some of Saul's struggles relationally as he took his first steps to be obedient to Christ. Will you read with me, um, starting in chapter 9, verse 20 of Acts. It says, and immediately, speaking about Saul, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and they had talked to him, and how Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord." And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews because they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, that you have not left us to do life alone, but you have empowered us with your spirit and you have given us the full counsel and the revelation of your word this morning. God, I pray you would guide us into truth. You would protect us from error and misunderstanding. God, you would give me the words to speak this morning because like we sang, I'm not enough on my own. I need you in this place. God, I pray this morning that we would worship in song and also worship through our study this morning in spirit and truth. And it's Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Before we dive into the text and, and offer some points of application, I really want to just spend a little time this morning defending the title of the message, Narrow-Minded Faith, Open-Minded Grace. Because if you want to alienate a crowd in 2021, I think all you've got to do is put the term narrow-minded in the title. Probably not a very popular term to use these days. Our culture doesn't really have a lot of rules. We're a very do-what-you-want kind of culture, except for the one unspoken rule that is don't be narrow-minded, which I've always thought is kind of interesting because when you're relying on someone to do something for you that has drastic consequences, you want that person to be narrow-minded. Imagine if we all took a trip out west together. Let's say we all got on a massive plane and we flew to Los Angeles. And as we're getting onto the plane, we noticed that there were no seats, there were no life jackets, and there were no oxygen masks overhead. We'd start to think something was up. So we go ask the stewardess, what's the deal? Why are all the safety precautions off the plane? The stewardess would smile at us and explain, well, the pilot is actually an open-minded pilot who's always up to try new things and believes in subjective truth. About that time, the pilot comes over the loudspeaker and he says, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be flying to Los Angeles International Airport this morning. It's going to be a wonderful day to travel. They tell me that we need a full tank of gas to get to Los Angeles, but we're going to try it on a quarter tank. Over. We don't pay a pilot to be narrow-minded. Why? Because flying is a matter of life and death. Now imagine we, some, by some miracle, got to Los Angeles and the pilot was looking over the skyline of the city. He could see so many beautiful things and then he saw that narrow runway of safe landing. And he thought, you know, I've landed on the runway a million times safely. Let's do something different. Why don't we try to land on top of the Staples Center where the Clippers play basketball? We don't pay a pilot to be reminded. Why? Because it's a matter of life and death. And if I'm going to give my money to Delta, I want to get there safe. Narrow-minded faith. It's actually a really good term to describe faith in Christ. Why? Because Jesus said the incredibly politically incorrect statement in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our faith is a matter of life and death. And there is one way to life. His name is Jesus. And this is why we must adopt a narrow-minded faith. Anything less doesn't count. A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what you believe about Christ. Why? Because what you believe about Christ is a matter of life and death. I think the world kind of teaches this, just believe whatever you want, and it'll work out as long as you're sincere. And Jesus is telling us, teaching us in John 14, you can be sincere and yet be sincerely wrong. And y'all, this is the description of Saul's life before he came to know Christ. Saul was a Jew, and he was zealous. He was passionate for the things of the Jewish faith. He was intellectual. He checked all the boxes of religion, and yet he was void of a relationship with Christ. We have to have a narrow-minded faith, and even a little variance on that faith can lead to a disastrous result. Any variance on that narrow-minded faith can lead to a disastrous result. Another example from the world of golf. I'm about to tell you more about golf than I know, but I know each year in August, rich men get together in Augusta and they fight over a green jacket at the Masters Tournament. Now the Masters course is one of the toughest courses in the world because of what some refer to as the razor's edge of the Masters. You see, the green is developed and made so meticulously that there are razor's edges in the green. And so you have to be very precise with how you putt your ball. If you hit your ball on one side of the razor's edge, your ball will stay and you made a good shot. But if you hit on the other side of the razor's edge, 
There's a very narrow slope that's almost impossible to see, and your ball will roll 10, 20 feet the wrong way. Even just a little variance can lead to a disastrous result. Missy Lee, why are you saying that this morning? Saul believed a lot of the right things, but yet he was void of relation with Christ because he rejected Christ as the Messiah. See, Christ is the razor's edge of our faith. It's what you believe about Christ. Any variance on what you believe about Christ can lead to a disastrous result. Think about Acts 7, what we studied just a few weeks ago. Saul and Stephen. You guys remember Stephen, the deacon who proclaimed Christ boldly, who Saul persecuted, who Saul stoned? Imagine if we took Saul and Stephen and put them in a Starbucks on a Friday morning to discuss theology with one another. We would have found out that their theology was very similar. They both believed in Yahweh God, monotheism, that God was creator, that God appeared to him to Moses at the burning bush and called himself I am. He would have believed, they both believed in Moses as the lawgiver, the one who brought the law to the people. They would have both believed in the Old Testament, the prophets, that there were prophecies about the coming of Christ. And yet they were separated by a chasm that led to Saul stoning Stephen. Why? Because Christ is the razor's edge of our faith. And even a little variance on what we believe about Christ can lead to a disastrous result. This is why we must have a narrow-minded faith, faith alone in Christ alone. They were similar, but they differed on the nature of Christ, and this led one to stone the other. This is why it's so incredible in 920, the verse, first verse we read this morning, we see a transformation in Saul. Remember, he was persecuting the church. He was stoning people who claimed that Jesus was the Son of God, and then Saul himself proclaims in 920, He's proclaiming in the synagogues, he is the son of God. Saul was now on the other side of the razor's edge. He believed that Christ was the son of God. Y'all, what's this telling us this morning? Just one thing, application for us, and we'll get into our text, is that Christless Judaism is a fruitless, fruitless religion that will save no one. Someone who's so passionate, so following the book to the T, following the law, fulfilling the law, that person without Christ, it's a fruitless religion that won't save anyone. Say, Liam, I'm not a Jew. So too, church, Christless Christianity is a fruitless religion that saves no one. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Where are you on that razor's edge? Are you coming to church in a small group, maybe learning doctrines about the faith? That's not what saves us. That's not what makes us right before the Father. It's a relationship with the uncreated God. We have to have a narrow-minded faith. The main idea of the message this morning, y'all, is we have to fight for a narrow-minded faith, faith alone in Christ alone, and that will allow us to engage our world with open-minded grace. If Christ is central, then we will see the world as people who need to have grace extended to them for the glory of God. This morning, we're going to see Paul's transformation, how he goes over that razor's edge, how he adopts a narrow-minded faith. Then we're going to see Barnabas extend open-minded grace to Saul, and we're going to see how these two things work together so that the church is strengthened. First thing we see in this passage is Saul's fall from grace. We're going to see Saul's fall from grace. Saul quickly fell from grace among his Jewish peers because of the message he was proclaiming. Remember, we're in Damascus right now. Saul was sent to the city. He was going on a business trip, let's say, to persecute Christians. But the site of his next persecution actually became the site of his first sermon when he proclaimed Christ as the Son of God. 
and he defies the Jews. Notice in verse 20, we already read it, is that he was proclaiming Christ in the synagogues. Remember, the synagogues were the places of Jewish worship, and he's proclaiming Christ there. In this passage, very, very quickly, as he's proclaiming Christ so quickly, they decide that Saul has to die because of what he was saying. He fell from grace quickly among the Jews. Not only do we see a description of this in verse 20, but we also see it in verse 22, where it says, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Not only was he proclaiming Christ, but he was growing in strength and he was confounding the Jews. My Bible in verse 22 says that he was increasing in strength. Some of you may have a different version. Um, Many versions say that he was being empowered. That verse there, that word in the Greek for empowerment or increasing in strength is the same word used in Acts 8.1 when Jesus said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. What is Luke telling us? He's telling us that the same power that was in the apostles is now in Saul. The Holy Spirit had done a work in Saul's life and now he had gone from death to life and he was proclaiming with power. Jesus as the Son of God. And this is confounding the Jews, probably for two reasons. This was really rubbing the Jews the wrong way. First one was they knew who Saul was, right? They knew he set out from Jerusalem to persecute the church, and he's proclaiming the church. I mean, he'd be like, how this guy, I can't believe what's coming out of his mouth. The second reason, though, that many believe that he was confounding the Jews, he was bewildering the Jews, was because of Saul's education. We gotta remember that this guy had the equivalent of a PhD in the Old Testament. He was the cream of the crop intellectually, and he knew the Old Testament. And instead of using the Old Testament as a grounds to persecute Christians, he was using the Old Testament, leveraging it for the kingdom of God to say, this is why Jesus is the son of God. He was confounding the Jews. They couldn't understand why he was preaching something, and he was being empowered by something, y'all, that was greater than heat stroke on the road to Damascus. It's not like this guy went crazy during his journey. No, he was being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we see Paul leveraging every part of himself for the kingdom of God. You know, it's so cool when you step back and just think about Saul's story, right? That he grew up and he became a Pharisee and that he studied the Old Testament and God transformed his life and God used his intellect, he used his training for the glory of God. I mean, just think about how sovereign our God is. God is watching Saul grow up to become a Pharisee. He's studying under Gamaliel before Jesus's ministry even. And God's looking down at Saul thinking, if I told you how I was going to use you in 10 years as you're obedient to me, you wouldn't even believe it. God was actually preparing Saul for gospel ministry before Saul even knew who Christ was. This is how our God works. It's the same God who put Moses in the palace in Egypt before the Israelites even cried out for deliverance. Our God is sovereign. Nothing takes him by surprise. And he leverages people's life for the kingdom as they respond in obedience. Let's take that for us. What has God put into you to leverage for his kingdom? You know, God can actually prepare you for kingdom work before you even know him? What about before you came to Christ, you learned what it meant to be a really good teacher or a really good coach? 
or you develop some skill or you have that ability just to go alongside someone and nurture them and instruct them and make them feel welcome and make them feel loved. And when we come to Christ, it's not about forsaking all the things you're good at. It's about learning how to leverage the things that God has given you for his glory and for his kingdom. You were created in the image of God and we are to return our very lives back to him as thanks. Say, Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. I want to use every breath in my body for your glory. And we see Saul do that in this passage. He's using all of himself for the glory of God. Some of you may say, well, Liam, that makes sense that you're saying God could use a college degree or God could use some incredible skill or some talent that somebody up here might have for his glory. But that's not my story. My story is not much about talent. It's more about brokenness. And I understand how God could use some of those things, but God can't actually leverage my brokenness for the kingdom of God. And y'all, you've got a narrow-minded view of God. You know that God can take your addiction and heal you of that and also use that for his glory? Do you know that God can take your broken relationships? He can redeem those and use them for his glory. Did you know he can take your insecurity? He can take your depression. He can take every part of you, even your broken story, and he can leverage that if you walk in obedience that you might find somebody who's going through something similar and you can say, hey, I walked through that alone, but you don't have to because I'm going to be beside you, discipling you and walking with you. God can use every part of your story for his glory and for his kingdom. We see God using Saul in a mighty way in this passage. But because Saul's being used in such an incredible way, he's ultimately rejected by the Jews. He falls from grace among the Jews. Rejection. Not a fun word to talk about in church, right? And I have so many thoughts about this this week, but I'll just throw one out there to you. Y'all, as followers of Christ, we say he is Lord, he is master, and that means we need to be willing to be rejected among men for the name of Jesus. This is just a thought that I've had in my head. Am I willing for my name and Christ's name to suffer the same fate in any social situation? Am I willing for my name and Christ's name to suffer the same fate in any social situation? That means in places where Christ is accepted, am I okay with being accepted there? That's the easy part. But in the places where Christ is rejected, where Christ is mocked, am I okay for Liam Hardy to be rejected and Liam Hardy to be mocked? That's a hard thing for me to grasp, to say that I want my name and Christ's name to be numbered together in his glory and in his suffering. And therefore, I'm okay with being rejected. This is the attitude that led the apostles to be beaten and imprisoned and walk away glorifying and praising God that he considered them worthy to be rejected for the name of Christ. Can I have that attitude? Or do I live to please men? The point that we have on the screen says Saul's fall from grace. And if we are living to please men, we will see rejection as a fall from grace. But if we are living to please God, we will see rejection as a fall into grace. If we're living to please men, we're going to see, oh, these people have rejected me. We're going to focus on the rejection. But if we believe that Christ has a greater story and that we live for the fame in his name, then I will see rejection as walking away from that saying, I am loved and accepted by Christ. That's the only thing that matters. Can we be okay with this kind of rejection, even a threat on our lives for the name and fame of Christ? So we see in Damascus, the first attempt on Saul's life and he escapes and he goes to Jerusalem. 
And in Jerusalem, we see Barnabas's extension of grace. We've looked at Paul and his narrow-minded faith. Second, we're going to look at Barnabas and his open-minded grace. You see, when Paul gets to Jerusalem in verses 26 and 27, let's read what happens one more time. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and at Damascus, he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So Paul shows up in Jerusalem, and he tries to reconcile the relationship with the disciples in Jerusalem. Reconcile is a churchy word that we use that literally just means to reestablish the relationship. Notice Saul tries to reestablish the relationship between him and the disciples. Verse 26, he was trying to associate with the disciples. Other versions say that he repeatedly tried to, to associate with the disciples, but they were afraid of him. Imagine showing up, the one who had murdered Christians, the one who had persecuted Christ, then showing up and being like, hey, I'm a Christian. They were not mean to him. That's not what the scripture says. They did not exclude him. It says that they were afraid of him and they didn't believe that his transformation was genuine. You can understand the disciples' mindset in that regard. That's the one who killed Stephen. That's the one who was ravaging the church. He was dragging men and women out of their homes. They were afraid. Well, what is he up to? What is he trying to do here? They were afraid. And then enter Barnabas. And Barnabas extends grace to Saul in a way that no one else would. We're introduced to Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. We're told that his name was Joseph. He was a Levite, but the apostles nicknamed him Barnabas. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. And this tells me immediately that the apostles held Barnabas in high esteem. I love to give nicknames in my student ministry. I have named kids Duncan, Flicker, Clicker, DeAndre, Spoons, Nugget, Never once, not even for a moment, considered naming one of my kids son of encouragement. The way they show up each week and behave, I've never thought son of encouragement. But that was the nickname that they gave Barnabas. I think that that tells us that the guy was special. And we see him extend grace to Saul. Does what no one else is willing to do. And, and I want to mention just two things about how he does this. Um, he brings... Saul before the apostles. And the first thing we see is, as he extends the grace, is that Barnabas saw the fruit of Paul's transformation, or Saul's transformation. He saw the fruit of his transformation. This is what Jesus taught us to do. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Barnabas extends grace, but he brings Saul to the, to the disciples, to the apostles, and says, here's the evidence of Saul's fruit, verse 27, brought him to the apostles, described to them how he had seen the Lord and he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas brings up evidence for why Saul has changed. He says he saw the Lord, he talked with the Lord, and he proclaimed Christ boldly. This is what Barnabas does. And he shows open-minded grace to Saul. Now, we talked a little bit and I defended narrow-minded faith 
give me a moment to defend this idea of open-minded grace. What do I mean when I say that we need to be people of open-minded grace? What I mean by that is not, see, Barnabas didn't look at Saul and see potential in Saul. He looked at Christ and saw what Christ had as far as potential for Barnabas. You see, the message of the gospel is that I have no potential for good on my own. You have no potential for good on your own, but Christ has potential for good and life and transformation for every person. See, the key to having open-minded grace to engaging individuals and engaging our communities with the grace of God is not to look at them, because when we look at people, what are we going to do? We're going to get cynical, right? We're going to look at them and see their brokenness, think about the times they've hurt us, and we're going to start to think there's no hope for them. If our eyes are on people, we will actually become very hopeless, because people are dead in their sins and trespasses. And as a result, we will actually become a believer with narrow-minded grace. Do you know a believer that has a narrow-minded grace? Have you been guilty of being a believer who has narrow-minded grace? Let me kind of tell you a little bit about what the believer looks like who has narrow-minded grace. They have their eyes not on Christ, not believing that the gospel is the power of God for all men, but they're looking at people and they start to throw up their hands about the condition of the universe, and they believe that everything's just spiraling out of control with no hope until Jesus comes back. And between the, now and the second return of Christ, there's no hope for redemption. They say things like this. You know, it all started when they took Christianity out of schools. That's when it really started. When did we lose our moral compass as a country? Seems like every year we just figure out new ways of sinning. Every year something new. My favorite one that we've all heard before is the grammatically incorrect sentence when a believer throws up their hands and they shake their head and they say, well, y'all, it just ain't going to get no better. You heard that one? This is the mindset of the bitter pastor. This is the mindset of the scorned church member. And I want you to hear me this morning. It is a mindset so far from the mind of God because believers with narrow-minded grace look at the world and say, y'all, it just ain't gonna get no better. But Jesus looks at the world and and knows what he did in the power of the cross. And he says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Christ looks at the world and says, we don't need more power. He's done it all through the cross. He says, we need more laborers. Y'all, the Great Commission is hiring. There are more positions than we can fill. And the gospel needs to go forth. It is good And it is right for believers to weep about the broken condition of the world. But do not weep on the sidelines. Weep in the fields. Weep while you reap. Weep with your knees down on the dirt in the harvest. Bring redemption for people. This is what it means to have open-minded grace, not to look at other people and see their potential, but to look at Christ and see the world the way Christ sees the world. He sees it as white and ready for harvest. Christ says, we don't need more power. We need more laborers. The potential is in us. The catalyst for more change is actually with us. Did you see that? It's not with the power of God. It's with the laborers going out into the field, each one of us doing what God has called us to do. The second thing we see that Barnabas does, he extends open-minded grace 
to Saul. The second one is he serves Saul by interceding for Saul. He serves Saul by interceding for Saul. You see, Saul showed up in Jerusalem and he tried to reconcile the relationship with the apostles, but he couldn't do it on his own. Remember, this is the murderer. This is the one who had persecuted the church. And so when he tried to reconcile the relationship with the apostles, he couldn't do it. They were afraid of him. He needed someone to stick up for him. Either interceding is a churchy word that we use that means to stick up for someone or advocate for someone. And Saul needed a third party to establish the relationship. He needed a third party to make him right before the apostles. And when Barnabas shows grace to Saul and extends the grace to reconcile the relationship, we see Barnabas just as a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because we, like Saul, are the murderers. We're the chiefest of sinners. And on our own, we cannot reconcile a relationship with God. I need a third party to have a right relationship with God. I need someone else to help me reconcile my relationship with the Father. And this is what Christ did. The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. And we saw the glory of God. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law and He died for the sins of the world. Christ fulfilling the law, the perfect sacrifice. He was buried and He rose again. And then He ascended into the Father. And where is He right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and He is interceding for you. He's being Barnabas for you. He's showing the Father why you deserve to be declared right, not because of your works, but because of the work of Christ and the grace of Christ. Christ, even as we sit in this room today, is interceding for you before the Father. The scripture talks about Christ's interceding work, and I just wanna give you quickly four things that Christ's interceding work does with some scripture. The first one is that Christ's interceding work gives us peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Christ interceding for us, because Christ doing the work to reconcile the relationship with God, I can have peace with God. For many of us in this room, even as believers, your relationship with Christ is not marked by peace. Because constantly, if we are not in Christ being refreshed and renewed by his word, the accuser, Satan, is stirring up condemnation and guilt in our lives. And even as believers, we struggle to have peace with God. And that's why we've got to rest and learn and have a narrow mind of faith on the work of the interceding work of Christ. To say that he is the one who has declared us right, justified us, and therefore he is the source of our peace with God. Romans 5 continues to go on and say that because of Christ, we have access to the grace of God. Second one is Christ's interceding work protects us from condemnation. Condemnation is rejection. It's looking at someone and saying, you've done too much to be in relationship with me. And so many times we feel guilt and condemnation stirring up within us to make us doubt our salvation, doubt that Christ actually has grace for us. And Satan would love for all of us to believe that. But we are told that the work, the perfect work of Christ actually protects us from all condemnation condemnation. Romans 8, and 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. Even this morning, we are being sustained by the living and active grace of God. Thirdly, we see that Christ's interceding work helps us in times of need. This comes from Hebrew um, 4, 15, and 16, where Christ is described as our high priest. We're told we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ's interceding work is there for us when we're weak, when we're at the end of our ropes, when we don't feel like we have the strength to carry on for another second. Christ is interceding for us and he knows. He's been where you've been. He knows what it's like to be human. And someone who knows what it's like to be human is extending grace to us, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. It's incredible. The Christ's interceding work, finally the last one. Christ's interceding work provides forgiveness when we sin. Christ's interceding work provides forgiveness when we sin. Not if we sin, but when we sin. 1 John 2, 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous one. Sometimes we mess up. We feel distance from, distant from God. Our sin separates that relationship. We feel that condemnation. We feel that guilt stirring up inside of us. Sitting in church and, and everybody thinks from the outside, you look so good, but on the inside, you're screaming because of your shame. In that moment, one person sees what's going on inside of you. And he's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is your advocate. This is what Christ's interceding work does for us. Christian, never believe the lie that Christ is distant from you, that he's given up on you, that he doesn't care about you, that he's forgotten you. Even now, he's interceding for you. We see in this passage that Barnabas intercedes for Saul. I want to talk about how Christ right now is interceding for us. And church, I believe what it means to live sent and be the body of believers is that we are called to intercede for others in our community, to pray for them, to pursue them with this grace, to see the world not as a desert that has no hope, but to see the world as a harvest that doesn't have enough laborers, to go out into our communities and reconcile Pursue the ministry of reconciliation for all men. We talked about Saul's fall from grace. We talked about Barnabas' extension of grace. And just very quickly, last point, very briefly, we see the church's growth by grace. Verse 31, this is going to be our last verse for the summer in the sent series, and I think it's a good one to end on. Acts 9, 31, let's read it one more time. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Just a couple of thoughts on that verse, and then we'll be done, is that we see that the church throughout all the regions, remember the church is growing beyond Jerusalem, it was enjoying peace. The fruit of intercession is peace. That's what we see in Romans 5. As people intercede for one another, we experience peace. Think about if the apostles had rejected Saul. They had never, and Barnabas hadn't stuck up for Saul, and so Saul would have continued to be obedient to God, right? He was, he was right with the Father, but he would have been rejected by other believers, so he would have kind of started a fragmented, different ministry. But what we see is unity and peace because of the intercession of Barnabas, because he was accepted by the apostles, because they recognized the fruit of, of transformation. It wasn't like one church uh, with Peter and the apostles and then another church with Saul. There was peace in the church because of this interceding work and the extension of grace. For them to look past Paul's reputation and what he had done to the church, to look past his past and see 
that Christ had redeemed him. The church was peaceful. We see they continue on the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then I love the last word. They were in the fear of the Lord, comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church continued to increase. I love that description of a church, that it increased. Because people ask me all the time, how's the church going, right? And the question they always ask is, is it growing? What do people mean when they ask, is the church growing? They want to know one thing, don't they? Numerical growth. Did you have 80 people and then have 90 people? Did you have 1,000 people and then 1,200 people? That's what we mean when we say, is the church growing? And I think this is just a better word to talk about the all-encompassing things that describe success and obedience in a church. Numerical growth is part of that. Corporately, that we would invite more people in, that we would reap this harvest that Christ has given, that we would be laborers in the harvest with open-minded grace to see the potential for the gospel for all people. But also, that's kind of corporately, but what about individually that the gospel might increase in you? that your roots might go down deeper into Christ, that you would look more like Jesus this time next year than you do now. And that's growth in a church if you're growing in Christ. And then also just growing our influence in this community that we shine brighter, that more people know about Connection Church Athens, not to make the name of the church greater, but we exist to connect all people to a growing relationship with Christ. We exist to reconcile all people. So what if we could just turn up the volume on our microphone in this community to invite more people to leverage our gifts and our talents in so many different ways in the schools and the communities, that we have a greater influence, an increasing influence in our community. Next time somebody asks you how the church going, do me a favor and just be kind of weird. Just say, oh, it's increasing. We're growing numerically, sure. But I'm falling more in love with Jesus every day. And we're seeing this body enjoying peace, continuing on in the fear of the Lord, being built up, enjoying the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's a good time. It's a good time. Church. Fight for a narrow-minded faith, faith alone in Christ alone. And this will empower us. If Christ is central, we will be empowered to engage a world with open-minded grace, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That doesn't mean we ignore sin. We're just fixing our eyes on Christ. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, Lord, we cannot do this mission on our own. God, I cannot be someone with open-minded grace. I can't, I can't live the way you call us to live on my own. So Father, I pray for, for myself and I pray for these people. God, we have heard your word. We know what you expect from us. God, we know that anything we do for you is just a small giving back. We can't even give more grace to people than we can give to you. Then you've given to us, Father, I pray. Lord, would you empower us to be humble and obedient? followers of Christ, fulfilling our purpose for your kingdom in this generation. Lord, thank you for this time, Lord. I pray you would bless these people this week, God. Give them the courage and the boldness to live sent for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.